You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Associate Pastor Andrew Morton. Well, friends, you've probably heard us say this. Jesus is greater. That's something that we're going to be saying a lot during this sermon series. You've heard us say this in the last few weeks, and you're going to hear it time and time again in the weeks and, well, let's be honest, months ahead as we journey through the letter to the Hebrews. And what a beautiful truth that is to rest in each and every Sunday as we come together, that no matter what it is we're talking about or dealing with, Jesus is greater. As we encounter this truth, God's word will invite us to go deeper, higher, and farther in our knowledge and in our personal experience of who Jesus is and of how wonderful, beautiful, worthy, and all-surpassingly great he is in the world and in our lives. In the last few weeks, we've talked a bit about this as we have seen that Jesus has supremacy over all things. We've talked in Hebrews chapter 1 about how Jesus has supremacy over the angels and all of the heavenly beings. Today that we see that Jesus has supremacy over us, over those who dwell upon earth, over all people. But as we uncover this truth this morning, we find that there is an even greater depth and richness to that that we may not realize. For, for yes, Jesus is supreme over us, but he's also supreme for us. He is supreme in a way that changes everything in our lives. And that's because Jesus, while he's truly God, is also truly one of us. So as we open up God's word today to the second chapter of the book of Hebrews, we're going to encounter four principles that are true for us as human beings because Jesus is also a human being, because Jesus is the greatest human. He is the supreme human. And as the leader of the redeemed human race, Jesus has restored humanity's glory and honor. Because of who he is, Jesus calls us his family. He proclaims freedom to the captives, and he stands with us in all circumstances as our merciful and faithful high priest. As, as we return to Hebrews 2 today, the, the first thing that we find in this chapter is that as the supreme human being, Jesus has restored humanity's glory and honor. Now we we stuck our, our big toe into the waters of Hebrews chapter 2 last week, as Pastor Aaron showed us, uh, the author of Hebrews kind of takes a pause. He has a sidebar in the midst of what he's talking about, about how Jesus is greater than the heavenly beings, and he talks about how important it is for us to continue to come back to the truth of who Jesus is. He warns us not to drift away from that, but to hold fast to the message that we have received. And, and now that he's reasonably sure that we've gotten the point, he continues diving right back into everything that he has been talking about. And so we pick up this morning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. And the words that we see here go back to talking about how Jesus is greater than the angels. He picks up this discussion. He says in verse 5, It is not to angels that he, Jesus, 
has subjected uh, the world to come uh, about which we are speaking. And at first glance, we see this and we think, okay, wow, we are diving right back into things. We've been talking about not drifting, and all of a sudden, he has just plunged right into the heart of what he was saying before. And it seems a little odd. This is kind of an oddly specific point to be making uh, about the angels not being given governance over uh, the world that is to come. And, and basically what he's doing is he's saying, well, well, folks, we've been talking about how Jesus is greater. And let me tell you yet another reason why Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater because of this as well. That, that it's not to angels, but to him that all dominion has been given. But then the author knows, wait, there's, there's a question coming. There's an objection that could come up. There's an elephant in the room in the minds of some of the people hearing this. And he says, I'm going to pause and I'm going to respond to this question or this objection. And, and he doesn't spell it out exactly, but he, he decides to sort of respond in advance. And based on what he, what he tells us, we, we know that he's anticipating that someone might raise their hand at this point and say, um, uh, teacher, I, I've got a question here. Uh, how can we say that Jesus is greater than the angels if, if Jesus became a human being, like, like what we're taught in the gospel? Because don't, don't the Old Testament scriptures say that humans are lower than angels? So, so teacher, help me understand how Jesus can be greater than the angels if as a human, he's also lower than the angels. And rather than avoid this challenge and just hope that his readers or listeners don't think of this question and, and move right on, the author of Hebrews faces it head on by quoting a passage that someone might use to make exactly that objection or to raise that question. So continuing in verse 6 and following, we find these words. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? a son of man, that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now, on a personal note, I am so thankful that the author of Hebrews leads into this quote by saying, there is a place where someone has testified. What, what an act of Holy Spirit-inspired kindness that is to all of us who have ever had a moment where there's a Bible verse we're thinking of, but we can't come up with the reference at that moment in time. Because here we see in the Bible, that's okay. Now, that place, of course, being referred to is Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, and that someone just so happens to be David, the renowned poet king of Israel. And in those verses, David is praising the Lord for his majestic and glorious creation, much as we have been singing about this morning. And in the midst of this praise, David pauses to reflect on the vast mystery that God has delighted in creating the human race as the pinnacle of this creation. And that God has endowed us as human beings with his image. That he has handed us the scepter to govern on his behalf. That he has appointed us as caretakers 
and as rulers of this wonderful and vast created order that he has made. Now, as the author of Hebrews concedes here, this quotation at face value could be taken to suggest that humans are inferior to the angels. But, but that argument starts to break down at two points. First, the phrase that we read in these verses uh, that we see in our English translation as a little lower than the angels seems clear to us in English, but in the original languages of the Bible, that could be taken in a couple different ways. Uh, that word a little could, Im uh, it could imply a degree of difference, a little bit as opposed to a lot. But it could also be talking about a duration of time for a little while as opposed to for a long amount of time. It, and, and so the reading of this quotation from the Old Testament could mean he made them a little bit lower than the angels, or it could just as easily be taken to say he made them little lower than the angels for a little while. And so that second reading would suggest that the glory and honor of humanity actually in the long term is above what God has given to the angels, uh, thereby dealing with that objection that someone could raise. But there's yet another place where that argument breaks down, and that is by saying that even though the vocabulary of a little could suggest, suggest that humans are below the angels, everything else in the passage is talking about the great honor and the dignity the worth that has been given to human beings, things that are true of them that aren't true of the angels, that God has given them glory and honor, that God has made them rulers over the works of his hands, that God has placed everything under their feet. So, so the author of Hebrews is responding to this objection by saying that instead of weakening his argument, the main thrust of Psalm 8 actually reinforces his argument. But then he anticipates his opponent's next move. It's kind of like a game of chess that's playing out here in, in Hebrews chapter 2. And, and he, he acknowledges something that's hard, but that we know is true. In one of the most honest statements in Scripture, continuing in the second half of verse 8, the author of Hebrews says, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, he says, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. The author of Hebrews says, this is how God set things up to be, but this is how things actually are. The present reality, he admits, is not the way things are supposed to be. And there's a reason for that. That's because of human sin. That's because of our fallenness and our brokenness that has warped God's good order of creation. And, and so now we see the, the rule and governing that we were given to do over, over creation falling apart in two different ways. One is that we don't do a very good job of doing that. And two, that the creation doesn't really view us with a whole lot of authority. We have zero control over a lot of things that happen. Natural disasters, earthquakes, floods. We can't control those things. We are hopelessly out of control when it comes to so many aspects of life and the world around us. 
And echoing this state of affairs, the Bible commentator William Barclay laments this. He says, man was meant to have dominion over everything, but he has not. He is a creature who is frustrated by his circumstances, defeated by his temptations, girt about with his own weakness. He who should be free is bound. He who should be king is a slave. And that's the tragedy of the human condition. We were made to be crowned with this glory and honor, but because of our sin, this is what we have become reduced to. At present, we do not see everything subject to them, the author of Hebrews tells us. But then, in one of the most hopeful reversals in Scripture, he goes on to say this in verse 9. He says, but we do see Jesus who is made lower than the angels for a little while. There's that little while interpretation of that phrase. Now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So we don't see things right now as they were meant to be, but we do see Jesus. He has stepped into the void. He enters into our brokenness. He has come to our aid. He has come to restore what was lost. He has taken on the mantle of fallen humanity in order to fulfill our original mission. He is the one who is now crowned with glory and honor, and in him the glory and honor of humanity have been restored. Bible scholar Philip Edgecombe Hughes celebrates the enormity of what it is that Jesus has done here for us. He says, the incarnate Son was the perfect, indeed the only perfect man. And the intention and achievement of his incarnation was precisely to restore to fallen man the dignity and the wholeness of his existence as he reintegrated in himself the grand design of creation. That's an amazing statement, that in Jesus, the grand design of creation that had been torn apart because of our sin has now been reintegrated. It's been brought back together for the glory and honor of God. This glorious restoration achieved by Christ now has a ripple effect for all of us who believe in him. We become part of the new, restored, and glorious humanity. Richard Phillips proclaims this. He says, Jesus is the new Adam of the new creation. What Adam lost, he has regained. All who are found in him through faith will partake of the new humanity's reclaimed glory and honor and dominion. We see Jesus. This is the aim of the book of Hebrews from start to finish, to show us Jesus as the answer, the one who reclaims what mankind was created to be and to do. Hebrews 2 encourages us that as the supreme member of the human race, Jesus has restored humanity's glory and honor. And then it goes on to tell us something else that is truly amazing and wonderful. That as the supreme human, Jesus calls us his family. After speaking of humanity with the language of, of royalty and honor, the author of Hebrews now goes on to describe the new humanity in Christ using the language of family. Listen to how Jesus relates to us in verses 10 through 13. 
in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name, he's speaking to God here, to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. That's a quotation from Psalm 22. And again, this is now from Isaiah chapter 8, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Now, now these quotations are all taken from messianic passages in the Old Testament. The author is highlighting these passages that would have been understood by the first Christians to refer to Jesus. And he's showing that embedded in these passages is the understanding that Jesus is acting on behalf of his family. So the takeaway from these quotations is that the scriptures had always expected the Messiah to be someone who stands in solidarity and in commonality with the human family members that he comes to save and to help. This is part of how Jesus is the perfect pioneer of our salvation. Now, now by saying that the pioneer of our salvation is made perfect through what he's suffered, the author of Hebrews is not telling us, well, that Jesus used to be imperfect, but now we have the new and improved Jesus, who's the perfect model. No, the word for perfect in this is a Greek word that implies being perfect for something. We might say that a particular tool or household appliance is perfect for a certain job. We're maybe not claiming that it's perfect, period, but it's perfect for what it does to help us. And in the same way, this is not saying that Jesus was once imperfect but has now been perfected, but rather because of what Jesus has experienced, his suffering and death, he is the perfect mediator, the perfect redeemer, the perfect high priest for all of us. In order to save us, Jesus had to be God, but he also had to be one of us. Bible scholar Michael Kruger points out, here is where we see how our salvation depends as much on Jesus's humanity as it does on his divinity. If he was not really human, then he could not really represent us. And if he could not represent us, he could not save us. But Jesus is a perfect human. And so he is our perfect representative and our perfect savior. When we hear verse 10 describe Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation, we may suddenly find ourselves with pictures in our minds of wagon trains and frontiersmen and coonskin caps. The Greek word here Archegos, which is translated for us as pioneer, it, it refers to someone who is a trailblazer of sorts. Someone who begins something or establishes something that other people can follow along with or, or be welcomed into. I examples of how this word was used in the ancient world include founders of families or founders of cities or schools of thought. 
The ancient Greeks thought of Zeus as the Archegos, the, the founder and leader of their pantheon of deities. And, and so by talking about Jesus as the Archegos, this is another way that the author of Hebrews says, step aside, Greek false gods. Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. Jesus is the true Archegos, the founder and the pioneer for us. The Archegos blazes the trail that others will follow. So in our culture, the concept of a pioneer is appropriate, but to us it may seem distant, abstract, and, and historical. To use an analogy that maybe fits more within many of our day-to-day -day lives, we, we might think of an Archegos as a visionary entrepreneur, someone who has a vision for, for something new, who creates perhaps a successful startup like a Steve Jobs or a Mark Zuckerberg. And just as the technological pioneers of our day have opened up new frontiers of innovation that have reshaped many aspects of our lives, admittedly some for the better and some for the worse, Jesus, in a much greater way, has opened up for us a whole new world of existence as part of the redeemed family of God in his new creation. And if there's anything that the author of Hebrews wants us to take away from this section of verses, it is that Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to be one of us. Lest the ancient or modern readers of this letter think that Jesus somehow regarded the incarnation as being beneath his dignity, something that was degrading to him. And, and that's exactly what the ancient Gnostics in, in the first century would have thought. But the Bible doesn't see it that way. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to become part of our human family. To be human, as we've seen in these verses ahead of us, is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Now, we know humanity has a problem. And that problem is sin. But Jesus came to remove our sins and to purify our sinfulness. He did not come to take away our humanity. That's why, as Pastor Aaron reminded us a couple weeks ago, the Christian hope is not that when we die, we're transformed into angels or another kind of being. Rather, the Christian hope is that when we die, we become, in a sense, more human than we were before. We have the hope of the resurrection where we will live as perfect, purified, and glorified human beings. And God will once more say, this is very good. And so if, if there was any shadow of a doubt about the fact that to be human is a wonderful thing and a blessing, there could be no greater affirmation of humanity than the fact that Jesus willingly and gladly became one of us. And for him, this was not a temporary arrangement. He continues to be fully God and fully man forevermore. And what a mind-blowing mystery that is for us, that he is not ashamed to be part of our family. And he is not ashamed to welcome us into God's family. No matter who you are, no matter what's in your past, no matter what's in your future, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He delights to point you out in the family album, to say, here's my brother, here's my sister, and I'm proud to call them part of my family. 
It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus Christ, the supreme human, is not ashamed of us, but he eagerly welcomes us into his family. And as we continue in our text, the next truth that we see is that as the supreme human, Jesus also proclaims freedom for the captives. Having described the full humanity of Jesus and his solidarity with the human race, the author of Hebrews now tells us why Jesus needed to be human like us and why that makes a difference for us. He describes the victory that Jesus has secured for us through his incarnation and his atoning death. And we find these words beginning in verse 14. He says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely, he says, it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now these verses tell us some amazing things. First, that Jesus has broken the power that death, hell, and the devil once held over us. At one time, we were at the mercy of those things, but now we have a new master and a new destiny. We don't need to, leave, we don't need to live in fear any longer. As Martin Luther joyously and thunderously proclaimed, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus. Jesus is victorious over the powers of sin and hell and the devil and the grave. In one of his parables, Jesus described his mission as coming to tie up the strong man and plunder his house. And on this side of the cross, the evil one is indeed constrained, and Jesus is freeing many captives that he once held hostage. Christ has dealt the evil one a mortal blow, and right now all of the howls and the rage that the enemy may hurl against us as God's children, the, this noise is nothing more than the loud tantrum of someone who knows that he is powerless to get what he wants. John Calvin notes that we have no need to fear the onslaught of the evil one. He says, For though the devil still lives and constantly attempts our ruin, yet all his power to hurt us is destroyed or restrained. Calvin notes, It is a great consolation to know that we have to do with an enemy who cannot prevail against us. And what a hope that gives us, knowing that he cannot win knowing that in Christ our victory is secure. Second, Jesus offers us freedom from our bondage to the fear of death. How did he do this? By dying. Jesus took the full brunt of death for us in order to undo its power over us. Philip Edgecombe Hughes celebrates the irony that Jesus' death was not a defeat but a victory. He says, but this death which appeared to be the extinction of all his power, all Jesus' power, was nonetheless the sovereign expression of his power. In what looked like a defeat, Jesus won a resounding victory. Before the cross, death was an undefeated tyrant. But now after the cross, death is reduced to a lame duck. 
its power is limited. Its duration is limited. Its effects are still real, but they're limited. The normally soft-spoken Bible scholar Simon Kistemacher can't help but gloat a little bit as he reflects on how death has been turned upside down by Jesus. He says Jesus defeated Satan by using the weapon of death. Jesus paid the penalty of sin by giving his life and set us free from the curse of death. And by paying this penalty for us, I love this, Jesus took the weapon of death out of Satan's hands. Jesus took away the fear of death. Not only can believers now approach our death and the deaths of our loved ones in Christ without fear, but now we can even approach death with a sense of hope because we know what is coming after death. Death brings us relief from life's sufferings. It transports us into the very presence of Christ. This could not have been the case if Jesus had not died in our place. But through his death, Jesus has taken something that once was only broken, and now he has repurposed it to bring us into his glory. Matthew Henry reflects on this. He says, Christ became man and died to deliver them from those perplexities of soul by letting them know that death is not only a conquered enemy, but now a reconciled friend, not sent to hurt the soul or separate it from the love of God, but to put an end to all their grievances and complaints and to give them a passage to eternal life and blessedness so that to them death is not now in the hands of Satan, but in the hand of Christ. Not Satan's servant, but Christ's servant. Has not hell following it, but heaven to all who are in Christ. What an amazing different perspective that is. That for us, death does not need to be something that holds us in fear, but it is something that now brings us closer into the presence of Jesus Christ. Third, Jesus has done this not for angels, but for Abraham's descendants. And, and here, the authors talk about Abraham's descendants in a spiritual sense, all who believe in Jesus Christ. And the amazing mystery of God's grace as offered to us in the gospel is that Jesus has done something for the human race that he has not done and will not do for fallen angels. He became one of us. He died for us. He redeems and forgives us. He greets us as his brothers and sisters. And no angel can ever say that those things are true of them. Matthew Henry marvels at the mystery of this grace that God has sovereignly chosen to lavish, not upon fallen angels, but upon fallen human beings like us. Henry says, the angels fell and he let them go and lie under the desert defilement and dominion of their sin without hope or help. He says Christ never designed to be the savior of fallen angels. As their tree fell, so it lies and must lie to eternity. And therefore, he did not assume their nature. But lest we begin to pat ourselves on the back, and flatter ourselves that we're better because Jesus has done something for us that he didn't do for angels, John Calvin serves, serves us up a steamy slice of humble pie when he says this, that he preferred us to angels 
was not owing to our excellency, but to our misery. There is therefore, there is therefore no reason for us to glory as though we were superior to angels, except that our Heavenly Father has manifested toward us that ampler mercy which we needed, so that the angels themselves might from on high behold so great a bounty poured out on the earth. What a great bounty that is. He lavishes us with grace and with mercy that we could never deserve. And on top of everything that we have already read and seen, Jesus has even more to lavish upon us. As the supreme human being, Jesus is our merciful and our faithful priest. Continuing on into the final verses of our passage, we read, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here the author of Hebrews gives us another reason why the second person of the Trinity needed to become human. Why did Jesus do this? So that he can be our high priest. This is the first of many references throughout the book of Hebrews to Jesus as our high priest. This is something we'll talk more about in the weeks ahead. But right here in this chapter, we find two things that Jesus has done as our high priest. First, he has made atonement for our sins. The high priests of old were mediators of a covenant that secured provisional forgiveness and reconciliation between people and God through sacrifices that had to be redone over and over and over again. But now Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, and he has stepped forward as both the priest and the sacrifice, offering himself as a permanent and lasting solution to the dilemma of how a holy God could embrace an unholy people. And second, because Jesus suffered and was tempted, he is now perfectly suited to come to our aid in our times of suffering and temptation. Jesus has a twofold knowledge of our lives. In his divine nature, Jesus knows all about what we are going through. In his divinity, he is all-knowing. He is omniscient. He is aware of every thought, every struggle, every doubt, every temptation, every hope, and every longing that we have. But on top of this kind of knowledge, Jesus now has an experiential knowledge. In his human nature, he knows what it is like to go through what we go through. He has had the same thoughts that we have. He has struggled in the same ways that we have. He has wrestled with our doubts. He has confronted our temptations. He has dared to hope in the face of despair. He has yearned with the desire of unmet longing. Jesus, our high priest, not only knows about our life struggles and battles, he knows our life struggles and battles. He has walked in our shoes. This idea, which surfaces throughout the book of Hebrews, that, that Jesus has been there and that he knows what our lives are really like, is at the heart of the campaign that is happening right now that maybe you have come across or heard of. 
Maybe you've seen the Super Bowl ads on TV that say he gets us. Or maybe you've seen one of the commercials online or somewhere else. The, the heart of this campaign, of which our denomination, the EPC, is a partner. So if you've wondered, is this okay? The answer is yes. This is coming from trusted sources. But, but the heart behind this is to try to take this idea from the book of Hebrews and unpack it for people in our culture to remind ourselves and to remind those around us that even when we feel distant from God, there is someone who gets us, and that someone is Jesus. A secondary focus of the campaign is to remind those of us who are already Christians that Jesus' actual life experiences give him a great deal of sympathy for so many people and invites us to show that sympathy toward others as well. And that's a good reminder for us too. Some of the ways that Jesus gets us according to these ads are as follows. Jesus suffered anxiety too. Jesus struggled to make ends meet too. Jesus had to control his outrage too. Jesus felt alone too. Jesus let his hair down too. Jesus was fed up with politics, too. Jesus disagreed with loved ones. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus loved the people even that we hate. And Jesus was canceled. There are many other things that we could add to the list. You could take something that's going on in your life, a particular struggle or temptation, or battle, or journey that you are on, and you could fill in that blank and say, Jesus experienced that too, or something a lot like it. He knows what it's like. He knows what you're going through. So what does this mean for you? What does this mean for us? Well, it means that you don't have to feel alone, and you don't have to feel ashamed when Jesus sees you, even at your very worst, he doesn't think other, he doesn't think strange, weirdo, failure, why can't you get your act together? He doesn't think unworthy. Instead, he thinks, me too. Instead, he thinks, I've been there. I know how hard that is. Instead, he thinks, my, how I love that person and how I want something so much better for them. He thinks, this is someone that I came to save. And this kind of thing in their lives is exactly the kind of thing that I came to save them from. So in our moments of temptation, of trouble, of doubt, of sorrow, and of heartache, we can lean upon this high priest. We can trust him. We can come to him. We can throw everything before him knowing that he loves us. And that he gets us. That nothing we say or do will drive him away from us. John Calvin urges us to be reminded of the great helper that we have in Jesus. He says, therefore, whenever any evils pass over us, which let's be honest, that happens a lot in this fallen world, let it ever occur to us that nothing happens to us but what the Son of God has himself experienced in order that he might sympathize with us. Nor let us doubt, but that he is at present with us, as though he suffered with us. Jesus is right there with you in the midst of it. 
He's there in the storm. He's there in the good times and in the bad times. He's with us and he is for us. Matthew Henry adds to this saying, He, Jesus, knows how to deal with tempted, sorrowful souls because he has been himself sick of the same disease. He clarifies here, not of sin, but of temptation and trouble of soul. The remembrance of his own sorrows and temptations makes him mindful of the trials of his people and ready to help them. Let's never forget that. He knows what we're going through, and he's ready to help us. He stands at hand, and he is more than enough. So in this moment, in this day, in the days ahead, in this chapter of our lives, take heart in the knowledge that Jesus sees you, Jesus understands you, Jesus loves you, and he eagerly welcomes you into his family. Jesus is not ashamed of you, even when you may feel ashamed of yourself or that everyone else is. Instead, Jesus will stand by you. He will fight for you. He will speak up for you. He will allow no true harm to come to you. He is for you as your brother, as your high priest, as your savior, as your Lord, and as your king. Praise be to God for all of these things. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we pause as we engage with your word today, and we confess that the things you tell us seem so far above us and too wonderful to believe. Lord, we struggle. We struggle in many ways to think of these truths as being something that apply to us. We read in your word of your love for us, but yet so often we feel cut off from you by circumstances, by our own actions, by other things that are happening in our lives and in the world. Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, that you would help us to receive you, that the warm welcome that you give us into your family is one in which we would revel in your grace, that we would truly encounter you as the one who conquered sin and death for us as the one who came not just as God, but as the God-man, who knows what it's like to walk a mile in our shoes. Lord, let nothing hold us back from coming to you, from running to you with open arms to receive yet again the love and the grace that is found in no other name than in the name of Jesus. In that mighty name, in that precious name, we pray these things right now. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.